your Bible with me today, if you will, and we're going to read in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51 down through verses 55 and 56, and I invite you to follow along with me as we read from this passage of Scripture. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you were of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, today I pray that through my weakness that your strength will be made known. Lord, I pray that my voice won't aggravate, but maybe will cause others to listen more carefully. I probably won't be able to be as dynamic in the vocal range as I sometimes try to be, but Lord, I pray that the message will not be missed. It's not the dynamics with which you deliver the message. It's the power of the Word of God itself. And I pray, Lord, that this seed as it's sown will take root in our hearts today and that it will change our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to begin a series of messages I've entitled, The Road to Heaven. And I want to take a few minutes to explain to you why I gave it that title and the significance of that title. In the verses that we've read here in Luke chapter 9, we see the very first indication that Jesus is about to take a journey, the last journey that he will make, to Jerusalem. And over these next few weeks, we're going to follow him along in that journey. It's not just Luke who will talk about this particular journey on this road trip with Jesus, if you will. Uh, the gospel writer Mark, uh, excuse me, Matthew talks about it beginning in chapter 1, uh, ch- chapter 21. Mark begins speaking about it in chapter 11. And uh, John begins speaking about it in chapter 12. And so all four gospel writers ultimately give some insight, maybe not all of the trip, but they give some insight into this road trip that Jesus is about to make that's going to take him up to the city of Jerusalem. Remember where Jesus is at this moment. He is in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. Jerusalem is about 65 or 70 miles south of where he is. And though he'll be traveling south, he'll also be going up in elevation from the Sea of Galilee to the mountaintop of Jerusalem where the Temple Mount is, is about a 3,000 foot difference. So he'll be going south, but he'll be going up in elevation. And he'll be going specifically for the observance of Passover. This is something that he had done every year in the course of his life, something he had done through the course of his ministry. But what's different about this journey, this road trip with Jesus, is that this is the last road trip that Jesus will make. This is the road trip that will take him to Palm Sunday when he'll triumphantly enter into Jerusalem that will lead him to Good Friday where he'll be crucified for our sins and the sins of the whole world and to Easter Sunday where he'll be resurrected from the grave. And the very first mention of that road trip, the very first mention of it taking place is found here in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. You'll notice specifically a couple of things that are said here as Jesus gets ready to make this journey. It says in the middle of verse 51 that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. You'll notice that it repeats something similar in verse 53, the last phrase of verse 53. His face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. 
That little phrase, steadfastly sets, the translation of a single Greek word. It means that he was determined. He was resolute. If you were to look at Jesus at this moment, you could see him physically, and you could see his face, and you could look into his eyes, you would see that there was something different about this trip. You, You would know specifically that this trip was going to be a trip that would result in something completely different than all of the other trips that he had ever made as he had gone to Jerusalem. And so when you see him at this moment saying that he's about to begin this journey to Jerusalem, you you can see the resoluteness of his heart, of the significance and the importance of the trip that he's about to make. Now take your Bible with me for a moment, if you will. Look look over to chapter 13 and look at verse 22. Luke chapter uh, 13, verse 22, and just look at these, these coordinates, these stopping points along this trip, and you'll see it. Chapter 13, verse 22, and he went through the cities and villages teaching, and here it is, and journeying toward Jerusalem. If you look over to verse 33 of that same chapter, He's making this journey now, verse 33. He says, nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following. How many days did it take to make a journey of this nature once you began consistently moving in that direction? It took you three days. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. And then he cries out, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. Or if you look over to chapter 17 for a moment, you see another one of the footprints of Jesus along this journey that he's making. Chapter 17, verse 11. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria in Galilee. Or if you look over to chapter 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 31, you see another of his footprints as he's making this journey. Verse 31, then he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we, go, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. And then one more time, if you look into chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, <clears throat> if you'll notice verse 11, Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem. Down to verse 28. And when he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And then in verse 41, verse 41, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. And so in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51, Jesus introduces for the very first time amongst all of the Gospels that are written that he's about to make this final journey, this final road trip with his disciples. Actually, the disciples are going with him. He's leading the road trip. And everywhere Jesus will stop along the way, Jesus leaves a footprint. And may I suggest to you that anywhere Jesus leaves a footprint is something that is worthy of us studying. And all along this journey, Jesus will leave footprints. We cannot cover every footprint that he leaves. But we will stop at some of these along the way with Jesus on this journey to Jerusalem to talk about some of the footprints that he leaves that inevitably teach us something about who he is and about what he has come to do. Now, you might ask the question, why do you call it the road to heaven? Why don't you call it the road to Jerusalem? If Jerusalem is his ending point where he's going to ride in on the Palm Sunday and he's going to be crucified on Good Friday and he's going to rise on Easter Sunday, well, the answer to that question, again, is in verse 51. Notice it, verse 51, the very first phrase. Now, it came to pass when the time had come for him to be, here it is, received up. In other words, Jerusalem is not the final destination. Jerusalem is a significant destination where something significant is going to take place, but it is not the final destination. Sometimes in the New Testament, especially in the writing of John, we read about Jesus being lifted up. 
We often use that phrase like we're talking about exalting him in praise or exalting him in worship, and certainly we want to lift him up in praise and in worship, but when the New Testament talks about lifting Jesus up, it's talking about him being lifted up on the cross, and when he is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. What is the lifting up? It's not just the exalting or the worshiping that we give to him. It is that he will be lifted up on the cross, but he's not talking here about being lifted up. He uses a completely different phrase. He says that he's going to be from Jerusalem received up. And that little phrase, received up, is used by the gospel writer Luke in the book of Acts as well. And three times, specifically in the opening three chapters of the book of Acts, he says, Jesus was received up. He was received up. He was received up. And where was he received to? He was received back to heaven. He was received back to the right hand of the Father. He was received back to the place that he had left when he had come to redeem our souls and to pay the price of mankind's sin. And so this is a road trip to heaven because ultimately while we're starting with Jesus on this road trip and following his footprints along this road trip that begin here in Luke chapter 9, and it's going to take us up to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to give his life and Jesus is going to rise from the grave, ultimately this trip is going to take Jesus all the way back to heaven where he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's making intercession for you and for me in that exalted place that has always been his place. Now what's interesting here about Luke chapter nine, these verses that I've read to you today is that as he begins this journey, as he starts his road trip with his disciples, leaving from the area of Galilee and headed toward Jerusalem. By the way, this is not as you and I sometimes do when we're making a vacation trip, we want to get to point A to point B as fast as possible and beat our record time if possible. This isn't that kind of a trip. This is a trip that winds around to some degree and stops at different places along the way, and that's where the footprints are found. And that's where you want to study the footprints of Jesus along this journey. But as he begins this journey out here in Galilee to make this 65 or 70 mile trip that'll take him up in elevation to Jerusalem, he does what was a normal practice of that day. He sent messengers ahead of him in order to have people prepare for him. He's bringing not just himself, but he's bringing others with him. And there needs to be preparation that will be made before he gets there and the others get there with him. They'll need a place to stay. They'll need food to be able to eat. There's very other, other, there are various other kinds of necessities that they will need as they're arriving at any given destination. And so they send ahead, Jesus sends ahead some messengers, and specifically, he sends them to Samaria. This is going to be the stop that he's talking about in Samaria. Between Galilee and Jerusalem is a stretch of territory called Samaria. Jews traditionally most often didn't travel through that area. They would go to the east or they would go to the west, but they would not go through Samaria. There was tension. There was strife between the Jews and the Samaritans. That tension and that strife reached all the way back into the history of Israel, all the way back to their captivity to the Babylonians and to the destruction of the city and the Assyrians, to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. There was intermarrying between the, some of the Jews that left, were left behind to Gentiles who were brought in to repopulate the area that was taken under captivity, and they intermarried and they produced this generation of Samaritans. And Jews looked on them as half-breeds. The Samaritans didn't like the Jews. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. There was animosity that existed. And so most of the times, Jews would not head through Samaria. They would go to the east or the west to go around Samaria. But you and I have already met Jesus before, haven't we? On another occasion, Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. And you remember he met a woman in Samaria at the well And he won her to faith in himself. And he 
changed this woman's life and he changed the lives of dozens of others who came out to meet him because of the testimony of that woman. And Jesus knows that there's an appointment with him in Jerusalem. The easiest path to that place in Jerusalem is through Samaria and there's work. There's a footprint that he's to leave in that territory. Well, when these messengers get to Samaria, rather than being met with acceptance, they are met with rejection. I think if you read these verses again and read them carefully, I don't think that they're rejecting Jesus. I think they're rejecting the fact that there is a Jew who wants to travel to and through their territory, headed to Jerusalem for one of the festival days, the Passover and they don't want to be any part of it. Often they would let Jews come, if they came, they would let them come through Samaria and stop in Samaria if they were going away from Jerusalem. But to have a Jew, specifically Jesus, and his disciples traveling through Samaria to Jerusalem, they didn't want any part of that. They didn't want any part of assisting in any way any of the festivals, any of the feast days that went on in the city of Jerusalem. So when the messengers get here and they said, Look, Jesus is coming this way. We need a place to stay. We need food to eat. Will you help us for one night while we're here? They rejected it. And they said, absolutely nothing doing. We won't assist you or help you in any way. By the way, the Samaritans rejected the prophets. They rejected the history of Israel. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch. They had their own place of worship. They had their own priesthood. They had their own sacrificial system. They weren't interested at all in facilitating a Jew who was going up to Jerusalem in order to participate in a religious service that they have long since rejected. And so they reject the request of these messengers to let Jesus stop in that particular city. It's going to tell us that he goes on, they go on to find another city, and you would assume that there was another city in Samaria that did receive them, but this particular city refused to receive Jesus and refused to receive his disciples. Well, what, what would you do in a given situation like that? By the way, we're headed toward learning about the character of Jesus. What would you do in a situation like that? Would you get huffy? Would you get angry? Would you get mad? Well, there were two of Jesus' disciples, James and John. And James and John come to Jesus, and they say to Jesus, Jesus, would you like for us, like Elijah, to call down fire from heaven on these who have resisted hosting you for a night when we're passing through? Would you like us to call down fire? Now, stop here for a moment. Think about James and John. <clears throat> These are brothers, sons of Zebedee. But they had a, a nickname. Uh, their nickname was Boanerges. It means sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. But I want to be careful to tell you that I don't believe that that necessarily indicates that these were impetuous uh, kinds of men who were looking for vengeance on others. I think by calling them the sons of thunder wasn't necessarily something negative, but it was probably something that was positive, that these men were zealous, that these men were passionate. Because when you stop and you think about it, we don't know very much at all about James. James, was, James ends up being the first martyr of the New Testament church. We know very little about James, but we know a whole lot about John. And what is John noted for in his gospel. And what is John noted for in the three epistles that he wrote? John is noted as being the apostle of love. So I think by calling them the sons of thunder, he wasn't saying something negative. Quite the contrary, that was a positive kind of a zealous, passionate kind of men that these two men were, these two brothers were. But on this occasion, when they know that Jesus has resolutely set himself to go to Jerusalem, and that he needs help along the way. They need help along the way in order to get there to make this three-plus-day journey, this 65- to 70-mile journey. <clears throat> they are absolutely flabbergasted that the people of this city in Samaria would refuse to allow Jesus to come. 
And so they say to Jesus, would you like us to call down fire like Elijah called down fire? Do you know that story? It's found in 2 Kings chapter 1. Ahab is dead. His son is now the new king over the northern kingdom. He's had a terrible fall. It has somehow pierced his body. He is wondering whether he's going to live or not. And so he sends messengers to the false god, Baal, to ask them, ask Baal, am I going to live or am I going to die? And God sees it and God hears it and God tells Elijah, I want you to intercept those messengers and I want you to give them my message. Remember what he says? He said, isn't there a God in Israel? Why are you going to a false god? Isn't there a God in Israel? He was rebuking this king. And then Elijah tells these messengers, you don't need to go to that false god. You can go back to your king and you can tell him he's going to die. He's going to die. Well, they go back to the king. They don't even finish out the journey to Baal. They go right back to the king. The king knows that they've gotten the message, but they're not sure. He's not sure yet who the message is from. And they begin describing him, what he looks like. And they said, that's Elijah. He doesn't like Elijah. That's Elijah. And so he sends three companies of 50 men each. The first 50 go to him, calling the man of God and says, the king says for you to come. They're going to take him under arrest no matter what, uh, no matter what Elijah says. They're going to take him under arrest. But Elijah and God have a different plan because God is not going to submit himself to this evil king or his prophet to this evil king and they call him the man of God. These 50 soldiers call him the man of God, but they do so with an air of, yeah, you're really the man of God. You're going to come under the king's authority. We've come to get you. And Elijah calls down fire, and 50 men are instantaneously destroyed. The king isn't finished. He sends out 50 more. <clears throat> they come to him with the same attitude. And again, the same result. Elijah calls down fire, and those 50 men are destroyed. And then the king sends 50 more, and by this time, there's a captain of this 50 that realizes, you know what, this is a man of God. This is a prophet of God. And he comes with absolute humility and brokenness. I know what you've done to my brethren before me, and I come before you, and the end result is that Elijah doesn't call down the fire, but Elijah goes with them because they came recognizing that he was, in fact, the man of God. You know, I've thought a few times that I wish I could be that man of God, you know, call, call down fire on occasion. <clears throat> but that's what they're talking about here in Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter 9. That's what they're talking about. You want us to do what Elijah did to those 50 men? You want us to call down for, for fire from heaven and destroy them? They've rejected you, Jesus. They're unwilling to assist you, Jesus. They're unwilling to help you in this journey. You're resolute. You're committed to. You're resolved. You're going to Jerusalem. They don't fully understand all that's going to happen in Jerusalem, but Jesus does. And the very first footprint that Jesus leaves along this journey is with these disciples as they're wanting to call down fire on those who won't let them stay in their city and refuse to play host to him when he comes through. Well, in verse 55, it says that Jesus turns to him and he rebukes him. He rebukes these two men. Actually, he's rebuking all of these men. <clears throat> and then he goes on to say something. If you have a New American Standard, or you have a New International Version, or New Living Translation, or the English Standard Version, <clears throat> these next verses are not in your translation. And the reason is because they're not in the Greek text from which those translations were made. They are in the translation I'm reading because the, this translation is made from the majority of the manuscripts rather than from the minority of the manuscripts. But I want you to listen carefully because I think what he says, and by the way, that's a scholarly discussion to have at another time. It's an interesting discussion. Really, it's a discussion beyond my ability to delve very deeply 
but it's an interesting discussion to be able to have. But I want you to listen to what he says to these men as he rebukes them. He says, you do not know what spirit you are of. Do you even know, James and John, the motivation? This is another reason. Calling them the sons of thunder, I don't think was something negative. Because at this moment, he says to them, you don't even understand what's the motivation that's coming out of you for wanting to call down fire on these people who have rejected me and rejected my stay in their city. And then he says, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, to save them. Now stop and think with me for a few minutes. They don't even know what spirit they have and the spirit they have doesn't reflect the spirit of Jesus Christ. Have you ever done something in your life and you thought to yourself after you'd done it, where did that come from? Where did that come from? (laughs) About 25 or 26 years ago, our children were still in high school, and our son played soccer and he played basketball for a local Christian school. They had a small gymnasium, wasn't a big gymnasium, so you were really close to the edges of the basketball court whenever they were playing. <clears throat> I made it to all those games. I, I didn't miss, I don't think I missed more than one or two games in any of, either of my children's uh, sports career. I don't think I missed more than one or two games and those were because of crises that I couldn't overcome. Whether they were out-of-town games or they were local games, I was there for all of those games. And I was sitting in the sands, and I, I knew what it was to listen to people yell at the players and yell at the referees, and to be honest, sometimes I did too. <clears throat> On this particular occasion, we were at home, and we were playing a team that was better than we were, and we were losing pretty badly. And There were a lot of people that had come from the other school, too, too many to sit on the other side of the of the stands on their own, and they had to put some over on our side, and unfortunately, one of them got just over my right-hand shoulder, a seat or two behind me. And through the first two quarters of the game, the first two quarters of the game, this man yelled over and over some of the meanest, harshest, ugliest things you could possibly imagine. These are two Christian schools playing ball. You know, when Christian schools play ball, they yell, amen. Hallelujah. (laughs) Glory to God. This man was yelling. Sometimes it was at his own players. Sometimes it was at the referees. Oftentimes it was at our players. I got through the first half of the game, and it was halftime. And, you know, you rest for a minute, and I thought it's going to have to be better as we get to the second half of this game, third quarter of the game. And here goes the game. They all begin again, and Sure enough, this man starts up saying the same thing again and again. And finally, our players came along this side. My son wasn't involved. Players came along this side, and the man said, I think the worst thing he had said the whole night, and I had had enough. (laughs) And I turned over my shoulder and looked him square in the eye, and I said, do you mind shutting up? The man got up. He walked down the bleachers, down to the gym floor, and he walked out. I thought, he's gone. It wasn't three or four minutes. He comes back into the gymnasium with the principal in tow. And the principal comes and stands in front of me. And before he says even a word, I say, I am so sorry. I lost my emotions. I shouldn't have said those things. I shouldn't have told him to shut up. I apologize. I'll leave the game or I'll sit somewhere else if that's what you'd like me to do. I apologized to the man who was standing there. The man said, no, I don't want you to leave the game. You don't have to move seats. He walked back up into the stands and he moved a little further down, maybe four or five seats further on down. And we finished out the game and we went our separate ways. Uh, We went our separate ways when the game was over. After the game, I went and found the principal and I said, I want to tell you again, I'm sorry. That's not the way a preacher should act. That's not the kind of things a preacher should be saying to anybody, let alone to people who are visiting in your gymnasium. It's not even my gymnasium. In your gymnasium. You know, when I saw him, he looked at me as if to say, 
of all the people that were here tonight, I would never have expected that to come out of <laughs> your mouth. I'd never done that before. I've never done that since. I never expected that to come out of your mouth. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. By the way, if I can tell you one good thing, for the rest of that next quarter and a half, the man didn't say anything else. <laughs> <clears throat> And if that disqualifies me as your pastor, I'll turn in my resignation <laughs> this afternoon. <clears throat> That's what he's saying. James and John, where is this coming from? This isn't who you are. This isn't who I am. Do you understand? This isn't the reason for which I have come. I have not come to destroy lives. I have come to save lives. I didn't come to call down fire out of heaven. I come to lift up mankind. I come to lift up their eternal souls to eternal salvation. I've come to help them. I've not come to destroy them. And what Jesus is saying to us in these particular moments, in this very first, print, first footprint that is left on this journey, as he's beginning this journey toward Jerusalem, the very first footprint he leaves is a footprint for us to begin to get a picture of the character of the person of Jesus. Because the character of James and John in those moments was not the character of Jesus. I want you to turn with me for a moment back to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. And I want you to get a little bit of a picture of the character of Jesus. <clears throat> John quotes oftentimes from the Old, excuse me, Matthew quotes oftentimes from the Old Testament. He's writing to a Jewish audience who would have understood the Old Testament quotes and the connection between those quotes and Jesus Christ. But he quotes in John chapter 12 from Isaiah 42. If you don't know what Isaiah 42 is, sometime go back and read it, maybe this afternoon. It's a messianic prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah, some 700 plus years prior to Jesus ever arriving here, is telling us this is the kind of person that Jesus is going to be. If you want to know something about his character, you want to know something about who he is, if you want to know something about him, I'm, I'm going to tell you, this is the kind of man he will be. This is the kind of God-man he will be. Matthew picks up part of that prophecy in Isaiah 42. Listen to it, beginning in verse 18. Well, look at verse 17. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's not going to be loud and boisterous, obnoxious. Verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. Till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Did you see that phrase in verse 20? A, bru a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. Oh, in those words, you're beginning to get a picture of the character of this person we call our Savior. You're beginning to see that what James and John were calling for is in fact not the person that we follow as the one who has saved us from our sins. What he's telling us in those words is that Jesus is one who is meek. And Jesus is one who is gentle. And Jesus is one who is tender. And Jesus is one who is compassionate. When he talks about reeds, You've seen reeds. They grow in marshy areas. They grow by the thousands in marshy areas. Uh, you can take them out and you can use them for a number of different purposes, but for the most part, you let them grow. But you could have a bruised reed. 
something has happened to that reed and it's just barely holding on. And Jesus comes and says to that person who's bruised by life around him or her, who's bruised by the sin of mankind, I want you to know I didn't come to break that person. Flax. Flax is a plant. And you can take that plant and you can use it to make clothing. You can weave it into things like linen. Or or you can use it to make wicks for your candles. And he's talking here about this smoking flax. When the oil is just about altogether gone, the, the wick is no longer pulling up the oil. The flame of the candle is just about to go out. You can see the smoke beginning to rise because the candle is just about to be extinguished. And Jesus comes along and said, I didn't come to break the bruised reed, and I didn't come to put out the flame of the smoking flax. I didn't come to call down fire from heaven. I came to save men from their sins. I didn't come to destroy. I came to deliver men from the desperate circumstances in which they find themselves. And even those who are my rejectors and even those who resist helping me, nevertheless, I didn't come to destroy them. I came to save them. Think about it for a moment. Isn't that what happens on the cross of Calvary when we get to the end of this road in Jerusalem? And Jesus is hanging on the cross. And you remember the seven last statements of Jesus as he hangs on the cross? And one of those is, Father, forgive them. He could have called the angels heaven. He could have destroyed the world, the earth on which we live, and all of humanity. But he hung there. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Can I tell you, that's the opposite of the spirit of the age in which we live? Just stop for a moment and think about the political realm. And let me say this now at the beginning of political season, so that we don't drag this stuff into our church. Let me just remind you of something. Politics is a different world than where we're supposed to be living on a day-to-day basis. Politics is a a world where you devour one another. It's a world of personal destruction. We will destroy the other person. We will destroy the other person's reputation. It's a world of name calling. It's a, it's a world of, of sometimes the harshest, hardest things you can possibly imagine. We've been exposed to it. We've watched it. It's not just this recent election. It's been in previous elections. It's been in most elections. But that spirit of destroy my enemy is not the spirit of Jesus Christ. We can differ. We can disagree. We can debate. But we're never supposed to be looking to call down fire on those who won't help us. Because that's not the spirit of Jesus. The spirit of Jesus, keep politics out of the church. We'll talk about the issues, the issues that intersect with the truths of Scripture, and we'll stand firm on those issues. But I want to remind you that you shouldn't expect anything less than sin from somebody who's a sinner. They don't know anything different. They don't know anything else. And the politics of personal destruction has no place coming from our mouths. It's like a preacher sitting in the bleachers of a basketball game, turning to a man and telling him to shut up. You don't know what spirit you're of, but it certainly isn't the spirit of Jesus Christ because Jesus didn't come to break off the bruised reeds and he didn't come to put out the smoking flax. Jesus came to see men and women in their brokenness and to lift them. And stop and think about it for a moment. Think about just prior to what Matthew says here. There's a man with a disfigured hand. And it's the Sabbath day, and Jesus sees him. And Jesus comes to him and says, do you want to be healed? And Jesus heals this man's hand. Now, you and I know that that would be a difficult thing for us to deal with in any age, at any age, in any society. But in an agrarian society where your hands were absolutely essential to nearly everything you did, you didn't have computerization or somebody who would translate 
Uh, you could speak to it. It would translate what you said. I mean, his hands were necessary for everything, and Jesus healed him. Jesus didn't break off that bruised reed. Or think, if you will, about the woman that was caught in the act of adultery, and they bring her to Jesus. You know, I always want to know, where's the man? He was committing adultery too. The woman caught in the act of adultery and throws her on the ground in his presence, and you know the story. Jesus writes in the sand, and he says to these that have brought her, the religious leaders, let him that's without sin cast the first stone. Let him that's without sin cast the first stone. And then one by one, they all file out, and they all file away to another place. And he's left with this woman. Where are those that condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And he lifts up a fallen woman who is broken. Or think about Jairus. He's a bruised reed and a flax that's about to go out. Jairus' daughter is near death. And before Jesus gets to his house, I'll go to your house and heal her. But before Jesus gets to his house, what happens? The little girl dies. And there is nothing worse in life than the death of a child. Nothing worse in life. Jesus puts everybody out of the room and Jesus raises that little girl to life. And Jesus sees a man, Jairus, who's a, who's a bruised reed, who's a flax that's about to go out. And he doesn't put it out and he doesn't destroy it. He lifts them up. He blesses them. He benefits them. Or think about the woman with the issue of blood. She's not even supposed to be in the crowd. To be anywhere near her is to become ceremonially unclean. If you touch her, she touches you. But that day, she knows if she can just touch the hem of the garment of Jesus, that Jesus can heal her. And she presses through the crowd, and instantaneously, she touches the hem, and she's healed. And Jesus stops, and he turns around. Who touched me? He knows who touched her. Jesus lifts up a woman who had spent everything she had on physicians and hadn't been helped. Or think about Peter, the man who denied Jesus three times in the most crucial moment of his life, three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. He lied three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. But you look at the days after his resurrection. And he tells the disciples to meet him down at the Sea of Galilee. And they're out fishing. He tells them where to catch the fish. They bring in this incredible catch of fish. And then after they had breakfast, he has this conversation with Peter. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus didn't call down fire on Peter. And he didn't call down fire on a woman who had an issue of blood, who was ceremonially unclean. And he didn't call down fire on a man whose hand was withered and caused him to be un unable to do the things that most others could do. And he didn't call down fire on uh, the woman who was caught in adultery. Listen, when you're calling for the personal destruction of other people, you're not of the spirit of Jesus. Because Jesus said, I didn't come to break the bruised reed, and I didn't come to quench the smoking flax. I came to save and not to destroy I came to save and not to destroy. And my friends, that is the work of God's church. That is the work of the Savior, our Savior, through us. It isn't to condemn. It isn't to destroy. It is to bring the life-giving message of a Savior who loves us. There was a lady named Sally. She Love to tell a story about a lesson she learned when she was in Sunday school. Her teacher often used visual illustrations to try to teach the lesson to the students, and his name was Mr. Smith. 
on this particular occasion when Sally came to her room as a little girl, she's retelling the story, <clears throat> came to the room as a, as a little girl, he had put a big, huge bullseye right up on the board in front of them. And then he had told the kids that in the next few minutes, what I want you to do is I want you to, I want you to draw the face of somebody who has hurt you, somebody who's made you angry, somebody who's done something to you. And so the kids started drawing their pictures on these pieces, individual pieces of paper, drawing it on these individual pieces of paper. Uh, Sally's friend drew a girl who had taken her boyfriend from her. Another of her friends drew uh, his little brother. Yeah, we've thought about calling down fire on our little brother occasion, haven't we? And Sally began drawing a picture of Mr. Smith. Something had happened, apparently. She began drawing a picture of Mr. Smith, and then they took the pictures Mr. Smith did and put them up on this target that he had put on this wall. And then he told him he had darts. He had these darts that were laying over to the side. And for the next little while, he said, we're just going to have fun. We're going to throw darts at the target, at these targets that are right here, hanging here in front of you. And they were having fun. They were laughing, and they were playing until time got too short, and they had to stop, and Sally didn't get to throw her darts, and she wasn't happy about it. She wasn't happy that she didn't get the opportunity that the other kids had to throw their darts. And you know, when they threw their darts, sometimes they threw them hard and it ripped the paper. As they were finishing this exercise, and Sally was sort of soothing herself from her disappointment of not being able to participate, Mr. Smith began taking the target down off the wall. And behind the target, Mr. Smith had placed a picture of Jesus. And now this picture of Jesus had holes all over it, tears all in it. Can, can I tell you, friends, when, when we come to people who are broken, people who are bruised, people who are like flax that's about to go out, and we think it's our place to step on them, put our, put our foots on their necks, and to end their misery, when we think that we're here to be a part of the a personal destruction of somebody else, and we don't see people who are broken and people who are hurting and people who need to be lifted up and people who need to be helped. I'm not sure whose spirit we're of, but it's not the spirit of Jesus. It's not the spirit of Jesus. There's three thoughts I'll give to you just quickly. Number one, come to Christ. Come to Christ. You say, Pastor, do you know how bruised my life is? Do you realize that I am that smoking flax? I'm just about to go out. The flame is almost gone. You can barely even see the smoke rising from where there used to be a flame that was burning. And maybe it's been a Christian who put his foot on the back of your neck or a preacher who put his foot on the back of your neck but I want to tell you, you're not going to meet on the other side the preacher. You're going to meet the Savior. And he is the one who is extending his love to you. And he's saying, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you broken? Are you hurting? Did you come to church thinking today, surely the preacher is going to put out the last little bit of flame that's in my life. And I've come to say to you that Jesus isn't that. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus comes to save you and to deliver you and to help you in the most broken moments of your life. Jesus comes to hold you in his arms and to forgive you and to love you and to put together what you thought could never be put together again come to Jesus. Number two, walk with, walk with Christ. Walk with Jesus. Come to Christ. Number two, walk with Christ. Walk with Christ. You say, I've got so much brokenness in my life. I've got so much brokenness in my life. So much brokenness in my life. And you think I don't? And you think the people around you don't? I should have said it last week, but I'll say it this week. Do you realize that Many, if not most, of your problems would resolve themselves 
if you just start walking with God. You just get up every day to set your heart on the Lord and the things of God, to walk with his people, to walk in fellowship with his people. Do you realize you'd need a whole lot less counseling and a whole lot less therapy, though you'll still need some of that probably? You'll need a whole lot less of that because there's just something about walking with God and the power of God flowing into you. When the flame's about to go out, he pours the fuel on it. And walking away from Jesus isn't the way we should be walking. Walking to Jesus and walking with Jesus is where you find ultimate healing. Now listen to me. You can go to a counselor and you can sit down with somebody who can talk you through your problems, but the only one who can set you free and bring healing to your life is Jesus Christ. Come to Christ. Walk with Christ. Number three, and finally, rest in Christ. Just rest in Christ. You say, Pastor, life's a struggle. Yeah, I get that. I didn't get 66 years of life to get to this spot and be able to say, ah, life's a breeze. No big deal. You having problems? There must be something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Rest in Christ. I don't know what the brokenness is, but I want to tell you something about Jesus. He doesn't want to break you. He doesn't want to put out the flame. And he doesn't want to throw you away. And you just keep coming back to him. And you keep walking with him. And you keep resting in the relationship that you have with him that can never be broken. You say, but pastor, I've done this. I've broken th these things again and again. I, I failed again and again and again and again and again. And you know what? You have a Father in heaven who says, I want you to come to me again and again and again. You are my child, and I will never turn you out, and I will never turn you away. Let's not be James and John. We don't even know what spirit we're of. Let's be people who are people of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Jesus.